Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle. Today I'm talking to Mohamed Rabbani, who's the managing director of CAGE. Recently, he was stopped at Paris airport and banned from entering France ever again, despite the fact that he was there in order to conduct talks and discussions with the local Muslim community. We'll be discussing what's happening, why are the laws so oppressive, and where we're heading as Muslim communities here in the UK as well as across Europe. Enjoy! I have to say that it's uh, probably, uh, to some, a badge of honor to be turned uh, away from, uh, you know, from, from France. And um, it's, it's uh, I, I, you know, it's quite distressing, it's quite uh, troubling. It's quite concerning, I'm pretty sure. But, um, you know, sometimes things get to a stage whereby when you're denied entry to a country like France, uh, it sort of indicates that you're doing something right. I was recently uh, denied a visa to enter the United States. And for years, for years, since 2000, I was traveling to the United States freely, without uh, hindrance, sometimes twice, three times a year. And often I was even asked, you know, how come I could enter so easily and, uh, you know, without, uh, without question, without hindrance. Um, so when recently my visa application was denied, it sort of gave me that kind of sense that finally, you know, finally. Um, but obviously, I mean, it's uh, especially when it's in the line of employment and you're trying to achieve something and you're trying to get work done. Um, it's uh, it's it's an incredible inconvenience. Yeah, I mean, but but let you know. Just tell me about uh, what what happened, and and did you expect something to ha- you know mm-hmm. like this mm-hmm. to happen? Mm-hmm. What happened to you in France? Um, yeah, okay, I'll go through the experience. I mean, um, everything was routine and normal. I landed in Paris airport, went to the to the desk. I mean, actually, before the desk, I was flagged up in the machine, the electronic section. Mm-hmm. So then I was uh, asked by one of the staff there to go and see a police officer. I went, spoke to the police. They said they need to take me in to question. So I was... Was this the first time that something like this had happened? In France? Yeah. Well, uh, actually, it's not. It's the second time. Right. Um, And we can go into that because actually, um, uh, two, three years back, there was a ban imposed on me, which I challenged in the court and actually overturned. Okay. So... The French courts? Yep. Okay. Yep, absolutely. Um, so um, I, I had there, thereafter traveled to France and I had done, as part of my work at CAGE, meeting a number of Muslim civil society leaders and also carrying out research investigations into how France is implementing its, um, what it calls the systematic obstruction policy. Okay, we'll, we'll go into that. So in any case, I was uh, taken by the police. I went to, um, they, were, they took me to, essentially to a police station inside the airport where they have cells, they have interview rooms and everything else. So I was held there for a while. And at some point after a number of hours, I understood that um, they are refusing me entry into France. So was it something I expected? No, because I had traveled to France before and I hadn't had any problems. And especially given the background, which I just mentioned, that a French court had already ruled in my favor and had actually said that the um, decision to bar me in the past was actually unlawful. So I was not expecting this. Um, Plus the nature of my trip was a series of meetings with media organizations in France. So I didn't think there was uh, 
any any reason that that the French authorities could use. Um, after a while, I, I mean, that then transitioned into uh, an overnight sort of stay at the um, the, the police station at the airport uh, in a cell, and then they uh, took me through using a uh, I mean, police basically escorted me in, in a police car to what is essentially a migrant detention facility okay where you know refugees asylum seekers again within the airport vicinity this is a, a little bit further away right. so maybe a five minute drive or something like that and so, during this time did you have access to solicitors do you have access access to your family to any contacts actually i did um actually the police at the airport um were understanding enough so i had my ipad with me i had my phone with me so i was able to communicate and get the message out there and uh, essentially update my team at cage and also put them a notice uh, bear in mind this was something like 2 a.m in the morning right so not many were around but in any case um, i suppose my team are aware enough to be um, vigilant so they were notified so later at the detention center um, uh, i was sort of booked in by, by, by them so all of my devices and belongings at that point were confiscated I was kept there um, within the facility for the whole day, uh, duration of the whole day. So in the morning when I woke up, I was able to, um, they have a sort of a, an office there which is operated by the Red Cross. I think it's a very good service. Many, many people who are fleeing war, persecution, they, you know, unlike me, I mean, they, they might be in a very difficult position. They don't have family, contact family, they don't have access to lawyers. So the Red Cross is there to assist them. So anyhow, I engaged them. And then thereafter, I met with police at the detention center, at which point they handed down to me a notice. And it's at that point that I realized, okay, this is not just a refusal of entry. This is actually a ban. Okay, so I was surprised by that, again, because I thought I had already overturned that in the French court. Um, and uh, what was more surprising was uh, the actual content or the reasoning given for, for the ban. I mean, earlier on you were mentioning, you know, some people take it as a badge of honor. And I think I agree with that, if it's for the right reason, right? Um, normally one should expect freedom of movement, you know, freedom of uh, association. All these are freedoms that are enshrined and particularly Western democracies, they, you know, champion these freedoms. But yes, if one is restricted or prevented based on a, a set of reasons as the French government set out in that letter, I, I do think it's a, it's a badge of honor. So essentially their reasons were um, very convoluted arguments that would, I, I mean, I, I, I contested that the, these could be simply a Google search that an intern at the Ministry of Interior could have carried out with uh, references to tabloid news reports all put together to paint a picture and then on the basis of that to assert that somehow I my presence in France constitutes a threat to public order. I mean it's a big leap, right? So I understood Bearing in mind that that was the same time where there were mass protests throughout the country. In, in exactly. France. In fact the police so, so is that is that somehow related? I mean the police at the airport insinuated that in the documentation that's not what was mentioned and i understood what so the police perhaps made an assumption that there's this uh, very tense situation there's uh, a lot of outrage anger 
um, at the police killing of that 17-year-old boy. So given the circumstances, they are taking a decision at the border to bar me. But obviously, I contested that, saying I'm not from France. I don't have any interest there, apart from the activities of my NGO, which is a you know think tank stroke research organization, which is monitoring government policy. So how do you link me to these events? I mean, I've got no, 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 no reason. But of course, I realized the, late, the, the next day, as I mentioned, in the, in the order, I actually saw that it was signed off, not in this period, it was signed off back in October. So, you know, so then I thought, okay, October, they took the decision to ban me. And it occurred to me that this, you know, it seemed to me, and I, I do believe this is true, that it's connected to a event in which Cage participated two weeks prior. Um, we addressed the French government repre representative who was attending the um, OSCE. So it's the Organization for the Security and Cooperation in Europe. It's an organization that gathers member states, around 30, 40 member states. So I attended and I addressed the representative from France and I essentially asked some tough questions about Fran France's treatment of the Muslim religious minority. and. They clearly didn't like that. They responded. Um, I have a copy of their response. And then they must have taken the decision at that point that this individual who is causing us embarrassment on the international stage, who is drawing attention to our oppressive, unjust policies, we need to bar this person. Wow. So that, that's the background. Wow. I mean, uh, when, I, when I started by saying that it's a badge of honor, obviously I was being flippant because I mean, you may console yourself to say, well, you know, I'm doing something right. And if the French authorities can't fathom to be criticized, uh, you know, over something which is real um, and to ban that person because he or she dared to air that criticism, um, then, you know, it's, they're not really worth pursuing over. But in reality, we're talking about something that is quite grave and quite dangerous. Mm, I agree. And quite significant mm. and important in terms of, you know, our lives. And like you said, I mean, we, we live in Western countries which champion or at least claim to be the bastions of freedoms and human rights and uh, are engaged in wars and conflicts around the world, claiming to be upholding human rights and, uh, and democracy. So if at home you're shut down simply because, you know, you uh, you criticized the French government over its treatment of Muslims, then that, that's something quite serious. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, for me, it also reveals a, a deep weakness within France's policymaking circles. Um, to me, if a person is strong or an organization entity is strong, it's, um, it can absorb and withstand criticism. It's a sign of strong leadership. So the way France has chosen to respond, um, not just in my case, but we can go into actually what it does domestically to Muslim communities there. Um, but my case is just an example of that weakness. And the weakness is that they can't tolerate facts and evidence being presented. Instead of engaging those facts and evidence and saying, this is wrong, or we, we reject them, and this is the explanation, they just take the authoritarian route which is to completely shut down and stifle all discussion. You know, a, a powerful government, as France is, 
um, should be able to withstand that, should be able to, in fact, invite debate, public scrutiny, and be able to defend its policies yeah, in public. You say that. I remember now that when I started off, and I'm, if I may, I'm, I'm slightly older than yourself, but uh, when I started in the mid-90s, um, I recall being told time and time and time again at every meeting I would attend that, um, you know, Muslims can't tolerate dialogue. They can't, you know, they can't engage in dialogue and they need to open up to dialogue. And which is why one of the reasons why when I established the Cordoba Foundation, you know, our slogan was cultures and dialogue. Cultures and dialogue, that's right, yes. And dialogue being the essence of, um, yet now it seems that that, Dialogue is is not tolerated by, but this time by by the French authorities and by the and French that's very states. telling, right? That's very telling, and, and and I think that's what we need. One of the takeaways, I think, uh, everybody should think about that. What, why is it that certain types of dialogue is permitted? Is even, um, I mean, you know, the the President Macron goes on to Al Jazeera and defends the caricatures yeah. against the Prophet Muhammad yeah, exactly. To that extent, that amount of dialogue, that amount of criticism um, must be tolerated but then a you know a small modest ngo from britain is barred from entering because why on, on what basis so to me i i take it take that aspect in a positive light i believe that um when uh, because it whatever we are asserting is based on facts it's based on evidence it's the truth ultimately and we are presenting those truths in public for public debate the French government cannot tolerate that. Any oppressive regime, any tyrant, if you may, um, only is able to carry out tyranny because um, no one opposes and it paints its policies as though it's benign, as though it's beneficial. So I take that as a positive. And I, if we see it from that lens, um, I'd like to think that this ban is is, is, is a continuation of the the resistance and the um, rejection that many Muslims in France have actually been been putting up, um, so it's a it's a positive. And have we're you gonna encountered fight it. any such difficulties elsewhere? Um, I, I must say I have. Um, so it's not unique to France in that sense. Um, so um, like, let's start from Britain. I mean, I mean, come, one should feel welcomed when they come back home. Um, I can't say that's been my personal experience. Um, it's been almost uh, almost every occasion, um, let's say 50-50, you know, come back home and subjected to the border powers that the UK operates, which is a Schedule 7 it's called. It's part of the Terrorism Act. So again, how do I process that personally? Um, yes, it's unpleasant. I don't accept it. I don't believe that any person, Muslim or otherwise, should accept being treated like a criminal, being um, subjected to extra scrutiny, surveillance, harassment, that's not acceptable. What form does this take usually, you know, Section 7 when you arrive? What, so, it, what happens usually? So typically the police at the border, they, they'd sort of have a small amount of questioning at the desk just to say, you know, where you're from, where you're traveling from, why did you go there? And then you're handed over to another bunch of police. Um, they're from Counterterrorism Command. So they're not usually in uniform. They and they just focus on what they consider to be national security threats, which is on the face of it reasonable, right? But that process then becomes um, up to six hours of interrogation. And the most disturbing thing is 
you do not have the right to remain silent. So you have to answer questions. So that's a violation of like the basic principle of a due process normally. Um, you can access a lawyer, but it's not as easy. For, say, for example, I landed at 3 a.m. I mean, you know, you can't no just way. call a lawyer, right? But they can question you. And I think the worst part of it is, um, and many viewers may not understand just how bad this is, but basically all of that is done without suspicion, meaning there's a basic threshold in law. Like if a person is meant to be uh, deprived of their liberty, if a person is going to be intruded upon, the police must have some reasonable suspicion that this person is involved in a crime or about to commit a crime. Then they can intrude and without your consent, they can question you, they can search you and, and things like that. But the way Schedule 7 is constructed is that there's no suspicion required. So that means essentially innocent people, there's no reason, there's no reason that you're being stopped. So then that begs the question, what is the reason? You know, so what is the reason? So that's in a summary, the treatment where a person goes through uh, this violation, the scrutiny, and at the end of the process, might be, let's say six hours later on, um, there's, uh, there's nothing like this. It could happen to you the next, next flight in. So yeah, in answer to your question, I mean, it's, it's not a unique to France, but I, I just want to single out France on the basis that, uh, it's way of dealing with criticism and especially dealing with Muslims. It's very different from the way the British authorities deal with you. We have to remember France banned the hijab back in 2004. Okay. There was no connection to the concept of terrorism. So uh, unlike in Britain, a lot of the discourses around securitizing Muslim communities because it's connected to a threat for, of terrorism, right? In France, it's been going on for a long time, okay? Hijab was banned in 2004, Niqab was banned uh, 2010, if I, if I remember correctly. And then uh, in 2021 or 2020, if I have the dates right, another law was passed called the anti-separatism law, which focuses on Muslim communities and essentially says, if you create these communities, which are apart from society, you are separating from society. So maybe in Britain, we, we, we hear the category extremist and we know exactly what it means, right? And we know exactly what policymakers are intending. So in France, the ter terminology they use is separatist. So they've created a, a law, which is essentially to stop what they call separatism. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. You know, you, you talked about Section 7 here in, in the UK, and uh, but it goes beyond just questioning. It goes to asking for personal information. It asks for credentials as to how to access your social media accounts. So what do you do? I mean, uh, it's it's something that's deeply personal. You, you have to hand over your devices and, and I, I don't know, but someone like myself, I have some private pictures of the family, of my daughters, of of you know my siblings and the such i i would loathe to hand over um that kind of information and detail to to security authorities but in your case the kind of information that you're handing over is not only personal it's quite sensitive absolutely yeah. so how do you deal with that well i think um first of all the power has been in operation since the year 2000 so it's not something new typically on average each year 50,000 people are stopped 
under this power. So it's not that what's, unique. What's the percentage of Muslims? May I? So according to an Oxford University study, they put it at around the 80% mark. Um, the authorities, they do publish figures, but they refuse to say... How many are Muslims or non-Muslims? Exactly. Non they just refuse to say... And that's just an interesting, just like, I just want to like do a little tangent again. When I, I'm always interested in like comparing how Western governments, you know, formulate policy. So in the French case, they just outright refuse to document, not just document, accept that there is something called a ethnic minority or a religious minority. They just completely outright refuse it. In, in their logic, there is only French. And you're either French or you're not French. That's it. Right, that's their culture, that's their, their laws are constructed in that way. In the British case, because of a different political culture, there is a space for multiculturalism, one would think. And some of that influence has, has then led to a different position, which is we do have um, people from different cultures and we do, like in the census, for example, there are questions to determine, you know, which background and culture. But when it comes to actually their political interests, they still will find ways to hide all of that. Okay, so here's an example. Um, we don't know how many people are from the Muslim background. We don't know how many people are from the Asian background. Um, so, can't or, or any other. Can't you obtain that information even through freedom of information? Attempts have been made and it's just denied because it's, it's mentioned that it's under national security. Um, but I can tell you for sure, um, I mean, I don't know if you've had experience yourself. Um, I know a lot of Muslim activists and other activists, when they go through borders, they are subjected to this power. When you are sat down, there's a document that's presented and that document, um, it goes from the standard questions such as what's your name, address, and then it actually asks, what religion are you? So clearly they're collecting all of that information, right? So they have that information, they're choosing to hide it because they know that if it were to come out, it would look terrible. It would literally look as though this is a systematic attack on the Muslim community, right? It's Islamophobic policymaking, right? So, okay, why does the government do this? So you, you asked around, you know, data um, and privacy. So all of us nowadays, we carry our devices, whether it's laptops or phones. When this law was constructed back in 2000, it wasn't really like that. You know, people didn't have like multiple social media accounts and so on, right? So what the police have done is they've taken advantage of um, the expansiveness of the law. And what lawmakers have failed to do is really um, adapt and adjust those powers. So now if you are stopped, you can be asked for your, all of your devices can be confiscated. You can be asked for your passwords to those devices. So let's say, let's, leave me alone. Let's say, for example, I work in a, a bank or I work at the NHS or I am a therapist. I will have in my possession as a professional confidential data belonging to my firm, belonging to my company. I will also have in my possession uh, data belonging to my customers or clients. So if I'm an investment banker, I've got all of my client accounts. Of course. Right. What Schedule 7 gives the police the power to do is to actually access all of that and you have no way to protect that. So it's a, it's a gross violation. There is, there is no room for you to say, I have sensitive information that doesn't pertain to me, and therefore I refuse to hand over those credentials. Technically speaking, there is an exception, and that exception is they, they categorize it under something called journalistic material. 
And this exception was introduced in a famous case of uh, David Miranda when he was um, carrying some hard drives belonging to Edward Snowden, the whistleblower from the NSA, right? So because that was a very high profile case, they um, created a bit of an exception. Um, there's some another category called special procedure material. The, the thing is, in practice, most people don't know about this and a lot of police officers even don't follow it. So in the moment when you're just under that there, kind of that spotlight, exactly, under that kind of stress. Exactly. And imagine you're, you know, you're flying back from a business trip or you're a holiday, tired, you're tired. fatigued, it's 2 a.m. at night. Exactly. So you don't expect people to just be quoting these legal terminologies from these uh, law books. So what happens in reality is a lot of people just hand over everything. And that's, again, deeply troubling. And I think what we as a society need to be thinking about is how can we allow police officers to intrude to that degree without suspicion, remember, without suspicion, that must not be acceptable because this shows the authoritarian nature of states. It's outrageous. It's really outrageous. And then the next thing we should reflect on is how have we allowed this to continue all these years? And I'd just be frank and say, if this was happening to the banking community, if it was happening to slightly more, you know, protected members of society, I think there would be a massive outrage. I mean, recently, I don't want to go on a tangent, but we saw, for example, Nigel Farage, his bank accounts were closed by, you know, a famous bank, prestigious, and uh, we saw the, the, the outrage. And uh, I read one of your tweets, I mean, uh, detailing how, you know, you're in your own experience, you've, you've had Nine to suffer. Nine years ago. That's Nine years ridiculous. Ago. I mean, it's just unacceptable. No one even, and countless charities and countless Muslim organizations and people who, whose business is closed down and, you and see, not a word, not a single yeah. word. So that, that really, for us, I think that is, uh, it just, it's, it gives us a, uh, reality check that uh, the, the struggle is going to be difficult, um, but we have to always think of ways to um, make what the points we're raising, which are points of principle, points of justice, how do we make it accessible and understandable and relatable to wider society who just don't know this is happening. And because it's not happening to them, they just don't know and they just from from the legal standpoint i mean i'm 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 sure that you've spoken to lawyers you've taken legal advice is there anything that could be done i mean I, you know i i had a chat recently with uh, with asam qureshi also of cage and we spoke about the legal aspect of this of of how far we can i mean the thing is that it seems that terrorism laws have created, um, a, you know, have 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 ring fenced the entire process, so that you, even if you seek, you know, legal advice or the such, and the law is on your side, it seems that this process or these procedures are heavily protected, so they can't be penetrated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The question is, okay, so how far does this go? Because Undoubtedly, these are growing. I mean, these procedures, this, this fence is, expand yeah, is expanding. So, I mean, and, and you're talking about yourself being a British citizen, someone who's of a high profile, someone who's out there, someone whose activities are well known, statements are well known, what you do and why, what you research are fairly you know, transparent and well known. And yet, you're treated 
like this every time you travel back to, to the UK? I mean, regardless of the personal inconvenience, I, I, I could only imagine, I mean, whenever my plane lands, my family are expecting me at home within two, three hours. So if you're going to be detained for another six hours at the airport, I mean, God knows what kind of inconvenience that creates. But also, you know, in terms of being asked, being demanded, being obliged to hand over sensitive information. So where, I mean, where, where are we heading? Where will this end? I think on the matter of law, I think that's a really, really important question. Um, it's, and I, I do want to sort of dwell on that for a moment. You're absolutely right when you say that the law has actually almost entrenched and normalized this discrimination and this overreach. Right? It's excesses in government power. And what the law has done is officially institutionalized that. Okay. So it's hard for us maybe to, to recognize that because we're inside it. But if you just sort of zoom out a little bit and we, uh, if we go to the story of what happened in Ireland with the troubles in the period where the conflict was happening, um, many, many people died in that conflict, maybe around 5,000 or so. And the British government did have laws at that time as well to deal with that threat of political violence on British mainland. Um, what was interesting was, Two, two, two points I'd highlight. Number one is those laws that were passed, they were, they were considered emergency powers, okay? Which means they were constantly under review. Every six months, every 12 months, parliament would sit, review, and check, is government adopting powers that are excessive, okay? And number two, those laws were, didn't try to um, expand into a territory, which is, um, I mean, the technical term is pre-crime. Okay, i.e., there's no actual crime being committed, but there's a forecast or a prediction that these people or this person, based on their profile, based on their mindset, based on their thoughts and beliefs, essentially, will commit a crime. So we didn't see that even at the height of the troubles. Okay, this is something exceptional in the era of the war on terrorism. And that's what's disturbing. So many, many of us naturally, we feel like, you know, the law should be fair. The law should be treating everybody equally. The courts should be independent. Okay. It's natural for us to feel that. Our experience, however, has shown that the judicial system ultimately is run by human beings. And those human beings are susceptible to bias, are susceptible to the political climate of the day. And they have repeatedly not only past um, judgments and sentences which are unjust and unacceptable, but they've in fact um, expanded and grown that, that body of law, okay, without any opposition, without any scrutiny. So that makes our situation particularly difficult. I don't want to paint a picture where we, we, we feel as though there's nothing we can do. I mean, I, I believe there are a lot of things that we can do, um, but it's important to measure the situation accurately. Um, if we make a wrong assessment, then we might be relying on the law for a particular outcome. But we've not understood that the, the legal culture, the culture within the judicial system has also shifted, right? So CAGE as an organization, because we're sort of monitoring these things very closely, I suppose these are our observations. And hence, we're quite careful, actually, in referring cases to court. Because we realize that the opportunity for, for a judge to stand against the tide and rule fairly against popular opinion 
against the um, hierarchy it would be the, quite an exceptionally event. It will be really, really difficult. And that person must be, they're a human being, that person will be thinking, if I make this ruling, I'll, I'll give you my case as a, as a, as a personal example. Uh, when I was prosecuted in 2017 for refusing to hand over my passwords to, to the police and the borders, my refusal was a principled refusal um, on the basis that um, in, in my position I had uh, information confidential and sensitive to torture survivors. So naturally, I can't just hand that over because of some threat from a police officer. I need to obtain the consent from those individuals, right? So I, I maintained that position. I was taken to court. And um, the judge uh, just illustrates what I'm, what I'm saying. I mean, she basically said in her statement that she believes I'm a person of good character. She believes that I have done with my best intention what I thought was right. She believes that in principle that was the right action. However, she's bound by the law, okay? That's what she said, and she found me guilty. Now, I would assert that if the political climate was different, that judge would have been brave enough to say, actually, um, this person is not a criminal, and the law has got it wrong, and I would like to make an exception here and rule that this person is innocent. Do you see? Yeah. So the question of law really cannot be separated from the question of the overall political climate that we're in. I don't know if you agree. I mean, if that's your No, your, I, your I, I totally agree. And, um, and I also take, uh, uh, take stock from your observation that relying on the law solely is problematic. Um, it only uh, leaves me to ask the question, okay, so what else can we do? I mean, do we, I don't know, I mean, embarking on media campaigns, for instance, and we know the state of the media. Um, I loathe to give, um, uh, you know, sort of a pessimistic uh, picture, but the fact is that spaces are tightening. And whilst the victims of this uh, sort of strangulation of, of, of freedoms and spaces um, might be overwhelmingly Muslims, but that is a threat to every single person every single person out there. I mean, if it could happen to yourself, if it could happen to me, it could happen to anyone. Because, I mean, <laughs> Allah knows that we're not engaged in anything illegal. So if, if we as law-abiding citizens can be treated in this particular way, then what will happen to the rest of, of society? And then we'll be, you know, really talking about a very, very slippery slope, but it'll be way too late because we're already talking about a terrorism act that's been, you know, enacted for, for almost a quarter of a century. I mean, it's not something that's new, but it's just that most people haven't been subject to it and therefore they are oblivious to the fact that it's, or at least they've heard of it, but they don't know the real implications thereof. So the question is, okay, so what do Muslim NGOs do? What do human rights activists do? What do people who are fighting for, for uh, you know, for freedoms and for human rights and the such, what do they do? Where do they go? I think uh, first is, as you said, very, very um, correctly, in my opinion, you have to take stock of the situation and accurately measure it. Um, when we measure it, that shouldn't then lead us to a position of pessimism. So I think that's the starting point. It's exactly as you've said. Rather, what we should do is realize, okay, other communities before us have faced lots of adverse circumstances and other communities in the Muslim tradition especially 
we have a lot of stories that we can relate to, which should give us inspiration, okay? Um, starting from the Quran, um, the story of Talut and Jalut, okay? That gives us perhaps some inspiration. And as Allah says in the Quran, many a times, a small group of people have overcome a larger group through the permission of Allah, okay? So if we start there and realize, okay, look, it's not all doom and gloom. It's just that in this particular period of history that we're in, Allah's decree is that we are, we are surrounded by some challenges, okay? It won't always be like this. It will inshallah change, okay? So once we adopt that mindset, then we, 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 we sort of like defeat the adversary from that point onwards. Um, it, we're no longer defeatist. We're no longer um, uh, insecure. We're no longer downtrodden, okay? We see ourselves as a people with a vision. We, we see ourselves as people with a purpose. Um, and then we start to chart a way, okay? So again, relying on that story in Surah Baqarah, we need to think what are the strategic um, plans and tactics that we can adopt given our circumstances? You know, we are a minority community. Yes, the media is very hostile. Yes, the laws are against us. Okay, so we look elsewhere. Okay, I think there's lots of space. I, I, I really do. I mean, um, for example, we should concentrate on civil society. Okay, we'll build alliances and partnerships with Muslim civil society, with non-Muslim civil society. When we look, you will find actually there's a lot of space. Number two, the laws in this country, are, after saying everything I've said, the laws in this country actually um, are quite, uh, you know, there's, there's space. It's not as though we are living in a autocratic police state, okay? I do feel for some citizens in, in the UK, it feels like a police state, right? Their experience of life is like a police state, okay? But I also realize that um, if they um, can kind of like, again, reframe themselves and uh, understand the boundaries of the law, there's a lot of space, okay? So I think we need to actually utilize that, okay? And what that means is, for example, we can voice our opinion, we can hold meetings, we can organize, okay? All of that is perfectly legal. I think where we suffer is because of the many years of propaganda, many years of dehumanization of Muslims, that affects our mindset. They come back to the mindset again. We start to see ourselves as though we can't do certain things, which we can. Actually, we do see ourselves as trapped, although we're not. And we have to remind ourselves we're not. So the mix up that we don't want to make is the intimidation, the rhetoric that the politicians put out or the media barons through the Daily Mail or the Telegraph or whatever it is, we shouldn't mix that up with the legal boundary, okay? So we shouldn't get intimidated. That's a very good point. In other, in other words, we shouldn't be intimidated. So when we hear, for example, Suona Braverman, yeah. I think last week or a few days ago, she gave a speech. Um, um, it's in the backdrop of uh, the upgrade to the contest strategy in the yes. UK, the counterterrorism yes. strategy. And uh, she was saying that, you know, Britain is, you know, there's a massive threat from ISIS, from Al-Qaeda, and everyone with any sense will understand that this is all bogus. Now, we've heard this story so often. Uh, meanwhile, there's a war going on in Ukraine. 
Meanwhile, there's a cost of living crisis. Prices, people can't, can't eat, can't feed their children. I mean, so a lot of sensible people will just understand that this is all bogus. We're not going to buy this rubbish, okay? So, but Muslim communities here, this would be my advice. We must not be intimidated. These are just words. They don't have any real meaning. And politicians understand that. They understand the power of propaganda. So what they do, they use that very effectively to intimidate us, okay? So that's my second point. If I may, before you, you move on, what does cage, CAGE do in terms of raising awareness, in terms of informing people? I mean, do you, for instance, do you have something that's, that you've published or on your website that tell people returning from their holidays or from their business trips, if they were to be stopped, what they should do, how they should answer and the such? CAGE assists people who are uh, wrongly accused or falsely prosecuted under terrorism laws, or they haven't had interactions with any agency of the national security category. So we advise them, we give them access to lawyers. CAGE also conducts a lot of research. That research is um, into government policy. We almost like act as a watchdog, keeping a check on excesses and abuses of power by government in the name of fighting terrorism. So we have a specialism in that area. Cage also advocates for, for justice in those cases and also on those issues. We really believe that um, the, the link which has been made between what they call terrorism or political violence is what, what I'd prefer to call it, and Islam is a totally false link. So a lot of Cage's work is actually to bring evidence and to show that these are lies that have been constructed in order to manage perception. So much of our work is in the media, some of it's on social media. We also engage in various circles, such as the academic community, the legal community. Um, and again, like I said, I, I really feel there's a lot of space. Like I do think there's lots of intelligent people all around Britain who don't buy the trash that they see on the tabloids, who don't agree with this um, fixation on othering other people. Um, it's just that in this climate, some of them, I would just say it frankly, they don't have the bravery to stand out. Okay, Some do, and we should recognize them, and we should really commend their work. For Muslims, you know, when we respond, we need to respond from a, a, a moral basis, first and foremost. We believe in justice. We believe in compassion. We need to act based on the fact that we see other people being persecuted or oppressed, we need to act out of compassion for them. We need to act when we see injustices. Yes, others will try to make us afraid. We shouldn't be afraid. Of course, of course. We should rely you know, it's, on Allah. It's, it's really interesting. And, and you know, I, I, I loathe to go down this line, but you know, I, I thought that we're over it. But this is our country. And you know, when I speak to my, to my children, and I have two adult sons. I, I tell them, listen, this country is yours. You're responsible for it. And you have a duty of care for it. And as Muslims, you have an added responsibility of instigating the values that we believe in as Muslims and trying to promote those, the, the values of justice, values of equity, values of, of freedoms and the such, which are essential to, to our faith. And as British citizens, I mean, it's, it's crucial that we do not let you know, these things go by. We do not, you know, just bend over every single time there's, there's, a, there's a bluster of wind or the such. 
and I, I absolutely agree with you that um, there, there needs to be courage. There needs to be faith first and foremost that this is a test, this is a trial, and this isn't the gravest test that mm, exactly. anyone has, mm, has gone mm. through. We read you know, in the seerah of our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi about the tests and trials that he and his companions went through. And, you know, and, and uh, so, so these things are, come, are bound come, to happen. It comes at a cost though, right? Of course. Well, how, how would you describe that? Like the cost and maybe is that where many of us um, are deterred? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you well, know, from your, from your uh, for instance, losing your job, for instance, or or having your bank account closed, or um, you know, I don't know, being evicted from where you live, or the such, and uh, you know, it's 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 not easy. I'm I'm, I'm not going to lie, it's not easy, and I I can I can imagine how I, I remember a few years back uh, um, a very dear friend coming to me and saying that uh, you know my 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 kid is being bullied at school. Uh, because it seems that some of the parents have Googled the name and the such and found this. The father is someone who has spoken up, who has stood up, who's a campaigner. Um, and uh, for some reason, the children set on their kids. It's not easy. It's heartbreaking. But um, for, the, for, the, for the kind of return that we're looking for, for the, that kind of society whereby we're free to speak, we're free to stand up, for what is right, where you know we enjoy justice, that we it's <laughs> absolutely worth it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. See, what I would add there, brother Anas, is I'd say also if we make a materialistic calculation, I can totally understand how people will measure things. They will see, as you've said, you know, there is a possibility that your bank accounts may be closed. There is a possibility that you may be experiencing blockage during travel, your freedom of association. Um, and various other implications, your reputation may be tarnished by some of these tabloid newspapers and other things. So from a materialistic point of view, I, I think um, we, we, we may be actually intimidated and we may actually fall into the trap. And I think that's what our adversaries are counting on. If, however, we look at it from the perspective of um, the Islamic viewpoint, which is in, includes materialistic calculation, but also includes the afterlife, the impact in the afterlife, of course also includes the spiritual impact on a person. When a person goes through hardship or adversity, it doesn't mean that they're losing all the time. They're also being purified. Absolutely. They're also being uh, reinforced. Their faith, their iman is being grown in that process. So actually, that's what I would advise. And I, I believe these are opportunities. I really believe that we're living in a time when there's lots of opportunity to do lots of good work and gain a lot of good deeds, essentially. You know, even if we focus on the materialistic, now imagine things being difficult right now and they're getting progressively difficult. Imagine how, if they continue to be progressively difficult, imagine how tough it's going to be for our children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, exactly. So part of our work, even yes. from the purely mm, materialistic calculations, you're trying to... To, to stave off, you know, the, the, the kind of horrific scenario that our own children could, could end up living in. Absolutely. And so, so you're doing this, you know, even if you think, you know, spiritually, you're doing something yes. that's going to save your children and their grandchildren and their children from, from you know, yeah, from uh, this uh, totally. getting, getting totally. absolutely So in, in, a way, we're, in a way, it's like self-interest because, uh, and, and I totally, I think that's so important and that's the way we need to think. 
we shouldn't be thinking about me and myself and my interest. We should be thinking actually our children. What kind of society do we want them to actually grow up in? Or, the, or our grandchildren, i.e. our vision needs to be more expansive than that. Okay, I mean, and, and again, so much of it is about um, how we perceive things. Okay, Go, going right full circle to the, to the beginning when you when you were say, saying, you know, is it a badge of honor? When I was there sitting in that cell, I, I was thinking, my community, the brothers and sisters in France, they will soon hear about this. I feel, inshallah, they will feel that a sense of solidarity a Muslim from Britain, in order to assist and show solidarity to French Muslims who are struggling, is facing some adversity. I would like to think that they will feel a bit of empowerment from that, a bit of, uh, their hearts will feel comforted that uh, we are not abandoned, we're not alone, okay? So I started thinking about these things, and it's very, very true. I mean, it goes a long way. We might think and focus on the negative aspects. Mm. But truly, it was only a few hours just sitting there and it was over. I mean, it was like 24 hour experience and it was all over. But the lasting effect of it is the Muslim community in France feels that they are connected to the Ummah yeah, that's, in, that's in Europe. A, that's a fantastic investment. I Isn't mean, it? I mean, uh, and, and they will feel like, okay, someone is speaking for us. Someone is remembering us. That which we cannot do because of the legal restrictions in France, others who can do, they're acting on it. They're t taking the French government to task. They are uh, drawing attention to it in an in a arena where it will be difficult for France to maintain its image, right? So this will bring comfort and support to the French Muslim community. So those should also motivate us, you see? Absolutely. That those bonds and connections of brotherhood and uh, community should motivate us. Carrying on from this line about um, how you could be proactive, how you could be positive, um, is there any attempt that you know of to reach out to the security authorities, to the police officers, to try to speak to them, to try to educate them, to try to let them know of the kind of deep impact that this is having, not only on individuals, but on their wider circles of family, friends, and, and community. Is, is there such, uh, such an attempt? So there's two types of attempts that happen uh, that I've observed. Uh, one category, I don't support myself. Um, I'll, I'll describe them first of all. So there are engagements that have happened with um, policymakers from within these institutions. So the police, Counterterrorism Command, um, the security services in the UK, it's called MI5. Um, I do think that dialogue is important. I do think they need to listen, okay? And we need to give them the facts and explain that what you guys are doing, the policies that you're pursuing, forget about the fact that it's unjust. It's actually counterproductive. You're not gonna achieve what you are intending to achieve, right? You are simply making, wasting money taxpayer funds. potentially dangerous. And you're creating further danger. Because you're wasting resources on people whom you know full well are absolutely, you know. Right, isn't it? You know. So, I mean, that that I, I, I do think is important. I do know that some engagements have been attempted. There's another type of engagement which is more with the officer level, right? Those, I don't think they're as productive, okay? Speaking with police officers on the ground and building relations with them 
it's all good and well, but within a very, very limited sphere. And I wouldn't advise um, Muslim communities or others to invest a lot of time in that. The reason is they're functionaries. Ultimately, they are functionaries. They do not decide policy. And yes, you may have a pleasant interaction with the police officer. That means he's a good person and there's obviously good people around. But the institution as a whole is actually set up in such a way to marginalize and discriminate. And they're bound by they're bound how by the institutions work. Usually my interaction with police officers or MI5 um, intelligence agents is very pleasant. They're professionals. I'm a professional and we just have a good interaction. So, I mean, I'll tell you a quick story. I mean, uh, just on this point, because you mentioned, I mean, uh, once I, I came back to the UK, I was stopped at the border in the usual way. And uh, the police officer said to me, oh, there's someone uh, you should meet. I said, okay, who? So, oh, you've asked to meet this person. So I thought, okay, because I've been complaining so much and I'm saying this is harassment, it's got to stop, right? Maybe they've arranged something. Maybe, you know, I'll go through a process and I can actually figure out why they keep harassing me. So then he, he led me uh, into the interview room and um, I kind of guessed it when I asked him, who is it? And he said, you'll see. So I kind of guessed it because, you know, MI5, the way they operate is they, 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 they operate in the shadows. They don't um, acknowledge that they exist. Okay. So I sat down and there was two um, uh, agents there. Um, they were, I'd say like my age or a little bit younger. Um, so they proceeded and I said, hang on, who are you? They said, we're from MI5 and you know, you asked about the harassment and we think we can help you. I said, I don't think you can help me and I'm not going to sit with you until, unless you give me an assurance that you can actually help get my name off this blacklist. Basically, you know, they were trying to sort of reason with me. Yeah? I said, okay, I'll give you five minutes and I'm going to listen. And if I think you're not going to be able to help me, I'm out. Okay, I said, okay, fine. So they sat down and basically they had five minutes to basically pitch whatever they wanted to say. And the conversation went and they tried to essentially say, look, what you're doing in CAGE, we actually really respect what you're doing. It's an important part of our democratic process. That there should be accountability, all that stuff. So I said, oh, good. Who are you? Um, and I got them to admit that they were, um, you can call them case officers. You know, like they have these cases that they follow, right? So I said, okay, you are case officers allocated to my case, right? How are you going to help me? And what kind of conversation are we going to have? It's not going to be anything serious. And let's face the facts. You're a case officer. Your objective is to gather information on me, right? So the meeting is going to end here. Unless you tell me, I'll be able to meet my counterpart in your organization to discuss policy. So I said, okay, you know, we can't do that today. I said, look, if you're serious about managing the threat to national security in this country, then we need to talk. But if you are insisting on gathering intelligence on members of our community, then you know that's never going to happen and I'll never, ever support your efforts. So they kind of got the message and then they said, okay, fine, we'll try to arrange, okay? As it so happens, what happened is um, it was so bizarre. I left it at that thinking, well, they're never going to do anything, right? So as it happened, a few months later on, um, I'm on a family trip. Um, I'm now in a small little airport in the northeastern part of Bangladesh. Um, it's got one runway. It's like very small. Um, I think it only has one international flight. That's it. 2 a.m., some tall white guy comes along and he says, oh, I'm from the um, 
British embassy and I'd like to speak to you. I said, listen, um, what kind of meeting is this? <laughs> 2 a.m., far-flung airport in the middle of Asia, and you want to speak to me? I'm not going to speak to you. All right, so I just continued. Then two other guys come in dark suits, and then they introduce themselves. and say, oh, Mr. Rabani, you know, you requested a meeting. <laughs> I was like, oh, my oh, goodness. My <laughs> is this a joke? <laughs> and they said, oh, yeah, you know, you remember you requested a meeting and in order to discuss how to um, come up with a more reformed policy on national security in Britain. I said, you guys, I mean, this is beyond a parody, right? So they proceeded to explain that what they wanted to do. The guy said, um, yeah, well, basically, um, the head of the South Asia division of MI5 was in the country. So we thought, you know, we could take the opportunity to meet you. I said, look, this is characteristic of everything that you guys do wrong, right? You're not giving me the basic courtesy of organizing a meeting. You're not being professional about it. What kind of meeting does a person hold at 2 a.m. when he's got like 10 members of his family traveling with him on a personal holiday trip? At an airport. At an airport, right? I said, look, even logically speaking, like you could have just waited 12 hours. I'd landed in London. Yeah. We could have had a slightly more, you know, reasonable. Civil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, and now look what you're doing. You're, you're, you're sort of creating this scene in the airport and look at my family. You know? So that's just to say initiatives should be taken forward to engage with the real policymakers. I, I feel the will is on their side. They have the power. They have the will. They have the resources. If they're really, really interested, they can easily establish that dialogue. Uh, organizations, organizations like Cage, Cordoba, and others are in a position where they can actually influence and support that dialogue. Okay, um, they have the right expertise, they have the right standing and credibility. Okay, but I think, unfortunately, the political division or the political sections of government, the ones that are sort of party political and really just overrun the agenda. So any sensible person within the security establishment really can't pursue a, a long-term you know, solution to this, right? The country's always dragged into wars, then there's blowback, then there's repressive policies domestically, you know? So we continue, inshallah. MashaAllah, excellent. Barakallahu khairan. Alhamdulillah. Barakallahu khairan. Thank you. Thank you.